You're listening to the Tranquility Tribe podcast, an empowering space for all parents from conception to childhood. In this podcast, you'll explore your birth options, hear from experts in the field, learn to embrace self-indulgence, and prepare yourself for parenthood with Haiti. She's a coffee connoisseur, lover of deep belly laughs, a big-time tailgater, and your neighborhood birth junkie. From Mississippi to Massachusetts and everywhere in between, here's your host, Hee. to you. Today is a very special Tuesday. It is voting day. It is a day that you get to go out and use your voice to make your choice heard. You have no obligation to vote for anyone but yourself. You don't have to vote the same that you did two years ago. You don't have to be the same person that you were at the last election. And you don't have to vote because your partner, your family, your neighbor, or your friends have asked you to vote a certain way. Dig deep and find what that voice inside of you is saying and then vote with that. I'm so happy that you guys have taken time out of your schedule to spend time with me. You're listening to episode number 73 of the Tranquility Tribe podcast and today I am diving into so much stuff. Our guest today doesn't need too much of an introduction. I'm sitting down with Chloe Louvel of The Midwife is In, and she is diving into so much stuff with us. Trigger warning, there is talk of rape and abortion in this episode. I also dropped the F-bomb in a very compassionate, heated moment, so beware of that and caution for little ears. Otherwise, mental health check-in for you. How are you doing? How are you feeling? Take a moment to think about the things that woke you up this morning, that got you out of bed, that keeps you driving each and every day. Think about the things that light your life up each and every day. Now I would like for you to think about at least three things that you like about yourself. Maybe it's something physical. Maybe it's something emotional. Maybe it's something about your intelligence. It doesn't matter what it is. What do you love about yourself? You're entitled to love anything and everything about yourself, whether anyone else appreciates it or not. What are your three things? For me, I love my resiliency, I love my compassion for what I do, and I love my ability to be able to see people for deeper than surface level. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. Without further ado, I'm so excited to introduce to you Chloe Lubell, a.k.a. The Midwife is In. Buckle up, folks, because this is a wild ride. Tuning in from New York, Chloe, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be on the show with you. 
I am so excited to have you on this show. For our listeners out there, first you will want to check out Chloe's Instagram and you can find her at the handle The Midwife Is In on Instagram. And it is filled with all sorts of tidbits, really helpful hints and tricks and all the things that you need um, to be a woman. But also I love that she talks to your partners on her Instagram as well. This information on her Instagram is for anybody who has a vagina, who doesn't have a vagina, who knows someone who has a vagina. Um, the Instagram that Chloe runs is absolutely priceless when it comes to information. But before we get into all of that and we dive too far into our vagina stuff, Chloe, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so um, I am a certified nurse midwife. I have been um, in practice for about more or less five years now. I went to my, I went directly into midwifery school from my undergraduate and came out roaring and ready to go, excited to change the world. Um, I currently work in a small private practice with two other midwives, and we uh, support births in an in-hospital birthing center and in the traditional uh, labor and delivery floor. Um, I have also worked in a public hospital, um, and right now what I do in my free time is I uh, work making uh, vagina suppositories, all kinds of things for vaginas, um, as well as other herbal medicines like teas and tinctures and balms. I love it. Your vaginal uh, suppositories are THC-based? No, uh, my vaginal suppositories are... um, an infused coconut oil with uh, comfrey, calendula, and rosemary, a little bit of uh, vitamin E oil, and a little bit of tea tree oil. But other than that, there's nothing else in them. Um, and they, I mean, those are those are my main ones that I make most and, and sell most of, and they are so soothing. They feel great after you've had a a yeast infection or a bacterial infection after you're healing from one or also if you're just dry all the time or if you're um if you've just had some sort of chafy sex a little bit of rough sex uh penetration that's left you a little bit chafed um it just feels great you pop one of those in before you go to bed and the next morning feels like nothing ever happened It's a rejuvenating pill. I love it. How many women out there are like, yes, I need some vaginal rejuvenation. All right, listeners, there you go. And we'll put all the links in the show notes as always so that you have access to all of the vaginal rejuvenation that you could ever think of. So Chloe, at what point did you know that you wanted to be a midwife and why midwifery care versus traditional OB care? Uh, You know, I don't have the best uh origin story when it comes to being a midwife i was always going to be an english professor write the next great american novel um and then i was in college and i read 
Spiritual Midwifery by Ina Mae Gaskin. Um, <clears throat> and it was a book that was, basically it's a book where uh, all sorts of women tell their stories, their birth stories of having had um, midwives at the farm, Ina Mae Gaskin's commune. And it's a very funny book tons of really goofy language people talking about how psychedelic it is to give birth and how trippy contractions are and I loved it um and I just had a deep inner sense of oh yeah this is it this is what I can do this is something I can do to be hands-on and make a difference for people um and I sort of just threw myself into it um it wasn't until I started practicing that I really started to learn what it meant to be a midwife, what it meant to be with someone throughout the whole course of their pregnancy and their birth and to be the person making a difference for them. I learned so much in my first years working in a public hospital supporting um, primarily low-income, undocumented, uninsured, or underinsured uh, patients, and supporting them in ways that no one had ever done before, and, and offering care and love and attention and gentle touch and choice, which, which was huge. Um, I had so many people cry and say, no one has ever asked me what I want before. Um, and that's really the epitome of what midwifery care is. Midwifery care is support in choice. Um, my, my goal is to have a healthy and safe birth for my clients. And that means safe for their bodies and safe for their mental health as well. That means supporting them in ways that I know will keep their bodies safe and making sure that they're the ones feeling empowered to make the decisions that are right for them, even if it isn't a decision that I would make for myself, uh, so that they feel as if they've made uh, the decisions that are the the best for them. Um, midwifery care means that I spend tons more time doing education than I would if I were um, a traditional OB if, or even a midwife who doesn't spend as much time doing education as I do. Uh, it means sitting down and explaining the reasons why I make a recommendation and the risks and benefits to each option uh, and giving that choice to my patients. There's a, a phrase um, that was used in nursing care. I forget who says it. Um, it's one of the big famous nurses from back in the day, but it, to paraphrase, it says that nursing care means offering doing for the patient what they would do themselves had they the knowledge, the skill, and the means. And I really hold on to that. Um, 
what I want to do is support you in doing what you would do if you had all of the background that I do, if you had all of my knowledge and my uh, experience. That resonates so deeply with me. There are so many times um, when I'm working with my clients that, you know, obviously I don't care what you choose. I really do not care what you choose. I want you to choose what is right for you. But I always come at it from the place of, if I was sitting in your shoes, what would I hope that someone would tell me? What would I hope that someone would educate me on? What would I hope that someone would walk me through or prepare me for or anything, really? I always try and put myself in their shoes so that I can, yeah, do exactly that. Try and give the care that I would hope that I would receive if I was, I was in their shoes. So... I love that. I think a lot of people get into midwifery probably through that same, um, that same way of thinking that you want in our eyes, better care for our clients. Right. Um, I think there's this really funny place where society has either OB is better or midwife midwifery care is better. Um, and for me, it's not that one is necessarily better care than the other. They're just a better fit for some birthing people than the other. Um, I've had clients that could not even imagine having their baby was an OB. The midwife was the perfect choice. And then I have had clients who could not imagine having midwifery care that the OB made them feel so safe. You know, having that OB care in the hospital is what they needed to feel safe. And they ended up having beautiful births with an OB. And my midwifery clients had beautiful births with their midwives. So is there a future of home birth midwifery in your future? Do you think you'll ever make this shift to home birth midwife? My big dream is to have a, I mean, if I could wave a magic wand, what I would want is a practice that supports people giving birth in the hospital, in the birth center, and at home. So that you come in for your care, you may not have decided yet where you want to be, you have a few visits with us and we talk you through your different options and then you can come with us to the hospital, to the birthing center, or we can come to you at home. That's my dream. Uh, I love home birth midwifery. I love home births for, for how intimate and cozy and quiet they are, how gentle they seem and I love birthing center care because it's just a perfect mix of being right there by the hospital having you know not having to do your own laundry when you get home from the hospital um, being supported by a nurse and a midwife having maybe having nitrous oxide gas and air available to you um, and I love hospital birth. There have been many times when I've said to someone, even when I'm with them in the birthing center, look, you've been awake for four days now. You can do this. Your body can do this. But I want you to have rest because you're exhausted. And I want you to feel engaged and with me here when you finally give birth to your baby and I think that you need an epidural in order to get that rest and being able to transfer into the hospital in that moment is magical I 
I love an unmedicated birth as much as the next person, but there is something so special about walking back into the room after someone has had a 30-minute nap with an epidural and they look like a human again. So being able to have all three of those options at my fingertips is really my dream. And is there a place that you know of that does that? I do know some uh, midwifery practices. Not many have all three. Some will do, uh, I, I mean, it ends up being a lot of uh, scheduling difficulties for the midwives, but I used to work in a birth and hospital, like a freestanding birth center and hospital practice. I work now in one where it's an in-hospital birthing center and the labor and delivery. I know people who do hospital and home who can transfer between the two or do planned hospital births. Um, so it, I mean, it is possible. It just would take a lot of a lot of finagling, yeah. I love that you bring up the epidural and that you talk about its very specific place in the birth world. So a lot of time the epidural gets a, a bad rap, right? So a lot of people are like very anti-epidural, like don't even come near me with that. Honestly, epidurals can be a really beautiful thing. They can be that little thing that you need to get over that hump to get your birth back on track or to get your labor going again. Um, so I love, love, love to hear with someone who I consider much smarter than I, you know, much more of an expert than I talk about an epidural in a positive light, because I think my clients are always so maybe caught off guard or taken aback that I'm not so anti-epidural. I'll be anti-epidural if you want me on that side of the fence for your birth, but I've seen epidurals do really amazing things and they have had um, amazing impacts on births where otherwise we weren't really sure how that birth was going to end and that epidural um, might have quote unquote saved the day. Um, so yeah, I really love to hear you bring our epidural into a positive light and not so much into this devil evil light that so often we portray epidurals as i mean there's a huge difference between coping with painful contractions and suffering and i am simply not going to sit by while someone suffers in front of me and if everything that i'm doing the back massages the position changes the coaching the warm water, the sterile water injections, the nitrous, if everything I'm doing isn't enough for them and they are truly suffering, that's torture. I'm not going to torture someone. And that's when I love to have the epidural available to me so that I can give them a break. Not everybody likes labor. I've had someone that I worked with throughout her whole pregnancy, so committed to natural, quote unquote, natural birth, although I have a, an issue with that term, uh, unmedicated birth, um, just did all of the classes, did all of the exercises, and she walked into the hospital and she looked at me directly in the eyes and she said, this sucks. I hate this. I want an epidural. And I could just tell it was, I could see it in her eyes. And there, there was no finagling around, oh, are you sure you, this was your plan? No, she was certain. And that's my role is to support her getting what she needs in, in that scenario. 
I love it. I want to touch back on the, the natural birth comment, but before we go into that, I've had a client that was very pro um, unmedicated birth. She really, really, really wanted it. And we got into that labor and she was done. And she looked me in the eye and said, get me that fucking epidural. She was done. And for those for those births, it is absolutely perfect. Again, I agree with you 100% on the suffering piece. I've said it on here before. So listeners, if you were with me many, many episodes ago, you've heard this already, but no one is going to walk into your birth room and give you a trophy because you had your baby with no medicine. And no one is going to come in and shame you or take your trophy away if you have your baby with medicine. This truly is about you and your birth experience. And if you go into it with this idea that you have to do it this certain way. And in reality, that turns into suffering. It's only going to taint and damage, or I guess it has the potential to taint and damage your future birth experiences or the way that you approach your future birth. So be mindful of that when you are going in so gung-ho, anti-medicine, anti-this, or you have a very strict idea of what you think you want your birth to be like or go like or the care you want to receive. Births are really, really unpredictable, so it's important to stay flexible and fluid when it comes to your thoughts around that. You can absolutely have a plan. You definitely want to be prepared. It's something I work really hard with my clients on, but as far as being married to that idea, I encourage you to really try and loosen up a little bit. Let go of some of your ideas that you're 100% married to, and instead maybe think, if I can't have this, or if it doesn't go exactly this way, what's my alternate? What, what else would I like? What is my plan B? And that's actually why I talk to a lot of my patients about instead of making a birth plan, making a communication plan. Um, so instead of saying in my birth, I want low lights, I want music playing, you know, I, I recommend saying instead, you know, exactly what you just said. If XYZ happens, how do I want to make the following, the follow-up decision? Do I want my doula to step in and say, let's take five minutes, doctor, midwife, provider, can you step out of the room for a second? Do I want my partner to be to ask me these three questions. You know, if I say, actually, I want an epidural, how do I want my support team to react to me in that scenario? So going through each of the different forks in the road that may happen and figuring out how you want that decision-making process to go down rather than saying, I absolutely don't want a C-section because you may have a C-section and that's part of birth. That's why we have this life-saving surgery available to us um and that's why we get providers in the first place when we're not all doing unassisted home births so um exactly what you were saying it's it's much more about focusing on communication rather than uh making a specific plan that you're going to follow come hell or high water I love your intentional language, too. You don't call it a birth plan. Um, I don't actually have super intentional language around this, which is surprising because I have intentional language around everything. I do generally call it a birth prep sheet, which just means we're prepping for your birth. And I do a lot of what you're talking about. I say, like, 
okay, I hear that you don't want this, but what if it happens, then what? How do you want people, do you want me to say, when you ask for your epidural, do you want me to say, I know you can do this, you are strong enough, and go into my spiel of why you're a beautiful birth warrior, or are you not going to ask for an epidural until you're completely there and you have made up your mind? Is that your safe word? I want an epidural. Because people are different, personalities are different. Some people cope by asking for it and then being reassured that they don't need it. And then some people are like, actually, no, that's not my personality. When I want it, I'll be done and I want it. And that is, that's the time. That's it. I'm done. Um, so I love it. I love that you, I love you have intentional language around that. Back to your natural birth comment. You don't love, um, you don't love the phrase natural birth because all birth is natural. Is that, is that the yeah. thought? Yeah, absolutely. I love I mean, it. It's this, there's so much, everything, there's so many emotions around birth from everyone on all sides of things. And the, the truth is that at the end, you've created a human and that human has come out of your body and that is miraculous. Uh, it's, you know, we talk about things being the most natural possible, but okay, so if you're going to have the most natural possible birth, maybe you should take your contacts out. You know, maybe we shouldn't, like, maybe we shouldn't use a car to, to drive to your birthplace. I mean, it's, it's such a such a wild delineation to say that with epidural is no longer natural. What do you mean? That baby's still coming out of your vagina? That's amazing. That's what your body's meant to do. That's incredible. So I really try to, you know, a lot of people use natural birth, so I have it in my brain. I say it sometimes when I'm responding to people who are using that language, but I really try to steer clear of it because uh, the real delineation that we're talking about is whether a birth has been medicated or not. And then another delineation is whether a birth is a vaginal or an abdominal birth. Um, and that's, and that's another thing that I try to steer clear of is calling uh, cesarean births, calling them cesarean sections or surgery or anything like that. It's, it's still a birth. That baby is still being born. So I call it, I, you know, I kind of avoid the term belly birth because I think that sounds really like weirdly infantilizing, but uh, a cesarean birth is absolutely a birth as well. I love, love, love that so much. So I run a couple of support groups here in Boston um, for moms and it always crushes me so hard when I hear moms um, say, you know, this was a section baby or this is my cesarean baby. I always just want to say, this is your baby. They're just, they're just your baby, you know, like however they came out of you, whether it was abdominally or vaginally or with an epidural, with no medication, like you all still have a beautiful baby. And so generally my first week of, you know, the series, I always start out with how I prefer to avoid terms like that. However, sometimes parents really, that's part of their identity is having an abdominal birth or that's part of their identity as a parent is having, you know, this type of birth or that type of birth. So 
it's a fine line of not robbing them of their identity, but also protecting that headspace and that mindset of language matters. So it's all very intentional in my small groups. And yeah, I really can appreciate your, uh, your language there. I really, really appreciate that. Love it so much. We're so much on the same wavelength. This is amazing. So I wanted to, um, I wanted to start out by kind of diving into the history of kind of gynecological care. I don't know if a lot of people actually know the history of women's health and you do such a beautiful job of this on your Instagram going into it and how it actually originated in torture and it you know women were used as basically devices to study like we were just we were bodies that that gynecologists could cut on and study and, and, and try different things and experiment on. And yeah, I want to hear it from you. Well, in particular, not, I mean, yes, all women, but also in particular enslaved women. Um, so the physician who's referred to sort of as like the father of modern gynecology is Dr. Marion Sims. Uh, he was practicing in the mid 1800s and he had a number of uh, enslaved African-American women who um, were he experimented on. So he invented a means of repairing a rectovaginal fistula, which is a hole or a passageway in between the vagina and the rectum. Um, and that is something that can happen after a vaginal birth in which a tear has happened um, and it hasn't been repaired right, either uh, a passageway can open up that wasn't there before, or indeed if the tear went completely through the vagina down into the rectum, which can happen, it's called a fourth degree tear. Um, in that scenario, it can be a really horrible impediment um, and it can mean all sorts of bad lifelong things for the person experiencing it. Um, and luckily he invented a way to repair it. However, he did that by causing these fistulas in these enslaved women and then repairing it without anesthesia over and over again and showing them off to other doctors, having them uh, be naked, hands and knees, uh, and allowing multiple people to examine their genitals. Um, and this is just one of many things that he did in his life. And he's the person that we've referred to as the father of modern gynecology. And that's, um, that's horrible. Um, he also invented um, a speculum, which is the tool that we use in everyday pelvic exams to open up the vagina in order to see the cervix or anything else inside of the vaginal canal. And I have 
zero faith that he put any consideration into comfort when he invented that. Um, so my, you know, my commitment to my patients in any case is that I absolutely focus on doing as comfortable of a pelvic exam as I can and trying to take away the aspects of the traditional pelvic exam that uh, remove agency for the person receiving it. Um, so I don't use stirrups. I find that stirrups uh, put you into a position where you have nothing underneath your bottom, you have nothing underneath your legs, you can't get out of that position easily. Uh, it, it takes it takes wobbling and falling over and maybe losing your footing in order to get out of it. And I want my patients to be able to get out of the position that they're in easily on their own. Um, so I pull out the bottom of the exam table, which is just a foot rest, and I use that. Um, there's about an inch of difference between the the area where their bottom is sitting and their feet, and that's enough for enough access for me with this with the speculum that I use. I make sure that the back of the table is sitting up at least at a 45 degree angle so that we can make eye contact. Um, I want to be able to see their face and know if I'm causing them undue harm. Um, I the them sitting even directly up won't change my ability to do a pelvic exam comfortably and safely on them. Um, they do not need to be lying flat, which, you know, is just one of the other things that we do to people is we put them lying flat in these exams and that's not helpful. Um, and I talk to them ahead of time. I explain what I'm going to be doing. I always tell them what I'm going to insert where. Um, I personally have had a surprise rectal exam before in my life and that was horrible. Um, a lot of people just think of, a lot of providers think of a rectal as part of the gynecological exam and don't even think to warn folks that they're going to do that. That's horrible. Um, and I also always say to them, I have been trained to do a comfortable pelvic exam and that is my goal here, but tell me if I'm not doing that for you. I will change what I'm doing, change my technique, or stop. This is in your hands. I am here to do a service to, for you. This is not for me, so if you need me to do anything differently, let me know. I love that. Exams are scary, and they can be very dehumanizing. So I remember very vividly my very first exam ever. Um, obviously, I was in high school. Um, I was in the same category of everybody else starting your period and then sex was also on the table and you wanted to make sure that you were protected, but you also had a history of, you know, doctor care. That's just kind of what you do when you're in high school and you are becoming a woman, quote unquote, for our listeners, becoming a woman. And it was terrifying. Um, I had a male gynecologist, which was the first mistake. I should have never had a male gynecologist. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of uncertainty. And then when you have uncertainty in your, and your, your genitals, your vagina in the same sentence room situation, that is, it's terrifying. And I think a lot of people's 
view of gynecological care probably starts in that exam, that very first one. And if you don't have somebody who's explaining to you what they're doing and what they're looking for and why you're here and probably what's going on with your vagina, because at that point you probably haven't explored it that much, it can definitely, definitely, definitely scar you, which just segues into my very next thing is the abuse that still happens in today's gynecological uh, gynecological care. So consent is the number one thing that pops up to me. And you just shared a story of being totally not consented to having someone put something up your bum hole. That is so, I am like in shock. I can't even imagine if that were me. And things like the Me Too movement have shined all this light on topics that are seemingly just now surfacing, but in reality, they've been around forever from the very beginning of women's health care. And it just wasn't talked about. Or if it was, it was sloughed off as that woman was crazy or, you know, she was making something up or something was wrong with her psychologically. So can we go into a little bit about the abuse that still happens? Yeah, I mean, it's, so I post a lot about agency and consent and, um, and I get a ton of responses with people saying, my provider did XYZ to me, was that okay? And the answer is, by and large, no. Um, it is really horrifying to hear what people are experiencing. Um, women aren't necessarily respected as having any sort of awareness of their body and ability to make decisions for themselves. Um, and that's horrifying. A lot of my patients will come to me having said, you know, my doctor told me that they wouldn't give me another prescription for birth control if I didn't have a pap smear, even though I told him that I have never had sex. Well, why are we doing pap smears? We're doing pap smears in order to test for changes to the cervix that can indicate cancer. What is the number one, and perhaps we're starting to think the only reason why those changes happen? HPV exposure. HPV is a sexually transmitted infection. That's how you get it. So if someone has never had sex, and they feel confident that there's no way that they've been exposed to HPV, do they need a pap smear? I don't know. This is a conversation that I would have with them in depth and we would talk it through. And if they decide that even knowing the guidelines that are to start pap smears at 21 years of age, regardless of sexual activity, and they still say, no, I'd rather not, then fine. That's their body. They have the information and can make that decision for themselves. Um, the idea that someone would coerce a patient into having a pelvic exam for a birth control is horrifying to me. Um, there is a ton of coercion that happens 
between people saying, well, I can't give you what you want if you don't do this thing. Um, and that's, I mean, that's unethical and, um, and also not helpful medically. It's not doing any good. It is allowing you to charge their insurance for a pap smear though. Not that that's necessarily why someone would do that, but it does add to the, uh, the pressure to do pap smears um, when they're not indicated otherwise. That's so grimy just to think of that somebody might take advantage of someone else's body when they're in such a vulnerable position is just so grimy and disgusting to me. I also have to think that I think a lot of providers just think that they know best hands down and maybe it's just not worth asking that person because it doesn't really matter what that person would choose. That doctor knows best or that healthcare provider knows best in their mind. And I think that is where we are currently with women's healthcare is kind of walking this line of maybe you do know best by textbooks, by medical advice, but at the end of the day, this is not your body. All you can do is give that person the information that you have, that knowledge that you have, that all the things that you, you want them to have, but at the end of the day, it's their choice. So they might be having sex for 60 years and it's time for a pap smear and they've decided they're done with pap smears. They've had them for 60 years and they're done. You have to respect that as a provider. That is not your body. I wanted to circle back to um, the speculum as you were talking, something popped into my head that not everyone's vagina is different. And while we have different sizes of speculums, everyone's vagina is so different because you were talking about, you know, let me know if I'm hurting you. Well, what hurts one person is not going to hurt the next. And what's comfortable for one person is not going to be comfortable for the next. And that's exactly how I picture the speculums that we use. I hate the speculums. They hurt me. Every single one hurts me. All of the, even the smallest ones, I feel like they can make a child speculum and it would still probably be very uncomfortable and, and almost painful for me. So for our listeners out there, keep in mind that your body is not different. Is Your body is different. For our listeners out there, keep in mind that your body is different than your neighbor's body. So what you need, don't be afraid to ask that of your doctor. They should be able to somewhat accommodate you, maybe not as beautifully and perfectly as Chloe would be able to for you, um, but your healthcare provider should definitely have a couple tools up their sleeve that they can make things more comfortable for you. Well, let me just say quickly um, that the next time, for, for the listeners, the next time that you are going for your checkup, your annual, your pelvic exam or pap smear, um, I recommend a few things. One is asking you to keep your clothes on. You don't need to be in a gown as long as they can access the places that they need to examine. So what I'll usually do is have my uh, patients take their pants and underwear off and put a sheet over their lap. And then when it comes time for a breast or chest exam, I recommend that they just unsnap their bra and pull up their shirt over their chest. And then I do an exam that way. Then they can put their shirt back down as I move to the pelvic exam. Um, 
I would also recommend asking them to, you know, if you feel comfortable with it or if you'd like to, and not everybody would like to, so that's totally fine if this sounds horrifying to you, but just bring with a little hand mirror and ask if you can use it. Uh, watch what's going on. I hand a hand mirror to all of my patients before I put on my gloves so that if there's something that I find, I can say, hey, is this normal for you? And you know better than I do, that's for sure, if this is something that you've had for years and it, you know, has never been a problem, or if you've had a rash like that before, or, or maybe, oh, yeah, you know, I saw that the other day, I don't know what that is, um, then that gives me a lot of information. And also, then I find that people jump a lot less when they can see the speculum coming, or they can see my fingers coming. Um, and they know what I'm touching where. Um, and the other thing is, ask them to try a couple different sizes of speculums. Um, if you feel comfortable with it, if they insert one and it's not that comfortable, say, you know, maybe you could do a smaller one, try that out. Um, I, you know, most providers will have at least three sizes of speculum. Usually they're generally the same length. Uh, there are, there's a small, medium, and large. There, there are a variety of different specula. There's difference in width as well as difference in length. Um, most people don't have all of those different versions, but maybe they do, and maybe they can try a couple different ones out. For sure. I think this all just goes back to knowing your options, right? So these are not things that you're going to get in that 10 to 15 minute window that you have with your doctor. You don't have time to go into like, look at all of my speculum. Please take your pick at whichever one would you like, small, medium, or large. Like, you know, like it's not, it's not Starbucks of speculums. You don't really ever get this time. So a little bit of it does weigh on your shoulders, listeners, to so do your own research and know what your options are. This is exactly why we have people like us in the birth world. So reach out to someone in your community. I mean, you can reach out to Chloe and I after this episode. We're happy to, to step you through and give you all the information that you want. But if you don't want that, at least reach out to someone in your community, local to you, to help you know what your options are. Um, and it doesn't have to necessarily start at birth. I think that's something that really kills me. And I always find it is so, I don't know, I, I wanted to say funny, but it's not funny. Just uh, flabbergasting or like shocking that people don't understand that they have choices starting from the moment that you go to the doctor. It, it really is at that 13 year old well visit where you're checking on things because you started your period. You have choices from the very, very, very beginning. I love, I love that. that. And let me just put in my personal uh, soapbox here, which <laughs> but Yes, go start a relationship with your GYN provider. Um, get to know them when you're a 13 year old. Talk about sex, talk about consent, talk about contraception, whatever you need, the comfort of your periods, whether you can make them lighter and easier and more regular or not. But remember that our guidelines for 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 pap smears specifically is that you do not need a pap smear until you are 21 whether or not you've started having intercourse 
once you're 21, you only need them once every three years as long as they're all normal. So I do think that there is some harm to be had if you are getting pap smears unnecessarily early. A lot of people say, well, I just want to make sure. But uh, what we're looking for, again, is HPV exposure. And HPV is a virus that for in almost every uh, scenario will clear itself out of your body within a few years. So that's why we're doing once every three years starting at age 21 is because we're waiting for your HPV to clear itself. If you have uh, an abnormal pap smear, then we're going to follow up a little more closely but we're not even necessarily gonna do anything about it for another year or two as we keep an eye on it. It takes on average nine years from your first positively abnormal pap smear to progress to full on cancer. So if you have an abnormal pap smear, it is in no way an indication that you have cancer um, or that it will even progress to cancer if you don't do anything. Oftentimes, it'll clear itself within the next few years. So that's just, I feel very committed to encouraging people to avoid exams and tests that they don't need. And a lot of people don't realize that they don't need pap smears starting at first uh, sex. I love it so much. Pap smears are the worst for me. Having that toothbrush thing stuck up in my vagina and like brushing my vagina. I just, I can't with that. It just upsets me so bad. So I love to hear that um, you don't have to have them every single time you go for your yearly, which I wanted to kind of keep on the same track of what you do and you don't need and what's necessary and what's not necessarily. Let's dive into vaginal checks during labor. So this is something that every time, you know, well, I won't say every time that's, that's quite extreme. Most of the time you have, you know, your healthcare provider coming in, slapping on their gloves, popping it up and they're like, all right, cervical check. Like, let's see where you are. In my experience with my clients, I either have clients who didn't know, they had no idea before I got with them that they could deny these or they didn't have to have these throughout their labor, or I have clients who are completely very, very, very against the cervical checks because they just know that it will probably throw things off. If they're in a nice groove and you have some stranger come stick their fingers in your vagina, it has the potential to totally send your birth and your labor off on a very different path than what we were headed down before. What are all of your need to knows for our listeners about vaginal checks during labor and delivery? The first thing uh, to think about is whether or not there is policy in the place where you're giving birth. So, for example, in my birthing center, the policy is that I need to know how dilated someone is before I admit them to the hospital. Um, so I tell everyone, eh, I'm sorry, but you're going to get at least one exam as I admit you to the hospital. Um, then 
what I recommend, you know, in some places, the policy may be that you have to have an exam every two hours. And that sucks. And maybe if you know that policy ahead of time, you will choose to give birth somewhere else um, if you can. But even in scenarios like that, you have the right to decline any health procedure. No one can force you into um, something, even if it's policy. Um, not that everybody feels ready to fight the man while they are in labor, though. So a lot of times, even if you had originally planned to decline procedures, decline vaginal exams, uh, you're still you're still finding that you know what? What? Fine, fine. Just I I can't fight this right now. Um, the other thing is that I recommend always either you or your partner or your birth support person, if that's a doula, asking them to remind you or allowing you to ask the provider, how is this exam going to change my care? That's the question is, how is this exam gonna give you information uh, that will change the course of my care at this point. Is this exam not going to change my care? Is this just a just so we can know exam? Um, I do my best to decrease the number of vaginal exams because from a medical standpoint, every time you do a vaginal exam, you're bringing more bacteria up there. You're increasing a risk for infection. And uh, infection during labor is not only uncomfortable for the patient, but dangerous and more likely to bring us into a more medicalized scenario. Um, so when I, every time that I think, all right, well, I want to know right now how dilated my patient is, is that because I just want to know? Or is it because it will change my actions? Um, and so I encourage you to say to your provider, if we do an exam, what will change um, ahead of time? And, and if they can... Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> it's going to be on here. Very protective of this. People I love, love it. it. Fine. I love it. Um, so if your provider says, well, this is just so that we know that things are progressing well, then no, decline. But maybe they'll say, actually, it's been four hours. Your contractions are not very regular or very close together and I'm concerned that you've been admitted to the hospital but you're not making cervical progress at this time. Um, I don't want you to fall off the curve that my hospital policy requires you to be on um, and knowing that there's a possibility that you're not making change right now, I think if we see that you're not making change, it would be a good time to start talking about augmentation.
maybe, you know, maybe that's the scenario. And then that makes sense to me. Um, it's a conversation to have, but it is um, much more of a reason than just checking things out. Or maybe someone will say, you know, you're, it, maybe a patient is asking um, for an epidural then it makes sense to do an exam if they're open to it because maybe they're asking for an epidural because they just went from three to eight centimeters really fast and this is a crazy wild ride and they can definitely make it until fully dilated without an epidural and make that decision or maybe it's been you know 12 hours that they've been making steady progress from four to five to six but even so you don't see them getting to fully dilated anytime soon and a decision for an epidural or not would be based on how far they've progressed so there are reasons to do it but i think the important thing is always figuring out what you know whether or not it is um necessary or helpful to do it at that time I love to hear you say that and exactly what you say to your clients too. Mine is not too far off of that. I always ask my clients to ask their doctors, what decision is going to be made off of this cervical check? Do we have decisions that are being made off of it? And it is very surprising that if there's not a decision, most healthcare providers are like, nope, I just want to know where you are. And again, for me, that is not a good enough reason. Some birthing parents love to know where they are. They like those checks. It gives them something to look forward to. It's kind of like your mile markers on your marathon that you're running. You now know that you're on mile 24, you're on mile 25. You don't have that much longer to go. And some birthing parents find it very distracting and, again, can even throw off their birth onto a whole other path that we were never going on. So when you are doing your due diligence and all of your research and stuff, which Chloe mentioned before, make sure that you're doing research of where you're giving your birth, where you're having your baby, so that you know what those policies are, you know what to expect. And your hospital policies are going to, um, they're going to influence the amount of times that you're offered cervical checks. So just make sure that you know that you do have the right to say no and you can ask questions like, is this going to impact my care? What decisions are we making off of this? Can we wait another hour and see what my body does before we do a cervical check? You have all sorts of options when it comes to that. I love, love, love talking about cervical checks because I think it is something that people think are so routine in birth and it doesn't have to be that way. Can we make a shift to bad periods? So you have this series on your Instagram and I absolutely love it so much. And other people do too. These are very, um, I call them big hitter uh, posts. So on your Instagram, these are posts that people absolutely love. I think a lot of people struggle with their periods and don't know where to get information, don't know where to find somebody to talk to, don't know natural remedies. What are all the things that we need to know um, about our period? Normal, let's start with normal periods and then we can move into abnormal periods. 
it's such a big um, zone. Um, a normal period, a normal menstrual cycle can be anywhere from, I believe, 22 to 34 days in length. I might have those numbers wrong, but basically your cycle, your full cycle can be any length and that doesn't make it necessarily a wrong cycle it doesn't mean that there's something going wrong um the length of how much you're bleeding can be on average it's four or five days but it can be much longer it can be shorter than that um my main thing is that periods are super weird cycles are weird hormones are all over the place for everyone um so don't panic if things aren't textbook. The textbook is 28-day cycle with, I believe, uh, four to five days of bleeding, but that's fine if that's not happening. The time that there's a problem with your uh, cycle is if it's causing you trouble, if it's causing you pain or um, you're ruining all your underwear because you're just bleeding all the time irregularly um or if you're not having any periods at all or very few if you're having fewer than four periods a year um and you're not on some kind of birth control that's stopping you from having a period that can be dangerous for the health of the lining of your uterus so you definitely want to check in with a healthcare provider if you're having fewer than four periods a year um, when it comes to heavy, crampy periods, we want to look and figure out what the cause is. The cause could be um, something inside of the uterus. It could be a fibroid. It could be um, something hormonal. Uh, for example, your hormones are out of whack, which is making it hard for your body to turn off the bleeding. Or maybe the position of your uterus is such that it has to, it's tilted backwards, it's folded over, um, and it has to work twice as hard to cramp in order to get the uterine lining out. Um, what I recommend is working with someone who is willing to go with you every step of the way and not just recommend birth control because birth control is a great way to deal with crampy terrible periods if you aren't planning on getting pregnant anyway but if you are planning on getting pregnant or hoping to then there are a ton of other things that we can do um, and that includes diet and supplements and herbs and uh, acupuncture and something called Mayan abdominal massage. A lot of different options. I love it. Options, options, options. That is, that's like my life motto. So there's also all sorts of other influences that can influence your period. And I'm sure a lot of you already know that. But Things like stress can impact your period. If you're super stressed out, it can either delay your period or induce your period. Other people's hormones around you, it's true that when you live in a room full or a house full of women, 
your periods might sync up, things like the energetic pull of the earth. So depending on how woo you are, the moon and the sun and, and all the planets, they are, they have this energetic pull. And so I see sometimes periods being delayed or, you know, induced a little bit early when we have things like full moons and retrogrades of, of different planets. So yeah, I think making sure that you, you aren't married to this idea that like every 28 days I will bleed for five days. And if I'm not doing that, something is wrong with my body. Again, going back to your body's your body. It's very different than your neighbor's body. So really try hard to not compare. It's a very humanistic thing to compare yourself to your neighbor. But if there's ever a place not to do it, it is about your body for sure. So what about herbs? You had mentioned herbs um, to help with your periods and you have a really remarkable background in herbalism. We, we touched on it a little bit about your vaginal suppositories, but what about natural remedies for period problems? What herbs do you recommend? And I know that you have teas and stuff that you make. Yes. Um, so I have a couple tinctures and teas that I make, uh, but basically the uh, for for figuring out um how to regulate your hormones how to regulate your cycle a little bit and decrease the cramping and decrease the bleeding if you are having a lot um there it's a multi-pronged approach which is what you were just talking about and i recommend this for everyone to Think about the fact that your reproductive system is the only system in the body that isn't necessary for survival. Um, and so if anything is throwing your body off, your reproductive system is the first thing to go. Um, and I tell this to my patients trying to get pregnant all the time. You got to regulate your sleep. You got to be sleeping well. You got to be exercising and I do not care about your weight as I have zero interest in how much you weigh. Um, I care about exercise as a function for regulating hormones, which is what it will do. Um, so that's 30 minutes of getting your heart rate faster than normal at least three times a week. More if you can do it, but if that's getting off the subway one stop sooner and sort of huffing it home three times a week, that is magical. Do that. Um, you have to be eating regularly. People with estrogen dominated bodies are actually designed to be eating once every three hours rather than just three times a day. So as soon as you run out of sugar from the food that you've just eaten uh, and your blood sugar drops, your body stimulates cortisol, which is a stress hormone. Because if you're in the wilderness somewhere and a, a, a bear runs at you, your fight or flight is going to kick in. Your cortisol is going to shoot up. And what cortisol does is it dumps sugar into your bloodstream so that you have the energy to run away from the bear. If your body is um, noticing that it has low blood sugar in your regular work day, you're sitting at your computer and it dumps in that cortisol anyway to bring your blood sugar back up, you're gonna be feeling horrible, but it's keeping your blood sugar up. So you're having these 
fluctuations of stress hormone throughout the course of your day. And I've told people about this and recommended that they bring a protein snack with to work so that they're eating at least every three hours. Just fill your purse with snacks um, and make sure, you know, set an alarm on your phone if you have to, to remind yourself because you might not even feel hungry at that point. People come back to me and they say, I thought I had anxiety, but I was just hungry. I had no idea that it was just my diet. So if that's going on, of course your body's not going to be putting energy into a regular menstrual cycle. Um, your diet's also really important. Having a high protein, uh, high vegetable nutrient intake diet is super important. Um, so all of those things come maybe even before the herbs, but then you can also add in the herbs. Vitex, which is chase tree berry, is a really nice herb for regulating hormones. It basically opens up the um, receptors for estrogen in your blood, which means that it actually takes estrogen out of your bloodstream um, so that the estrogen is used and that allows there to be space for the progesterone to uh, increase. Um, so it stimulates your body to do its own work to regulate hormones rather than working like an external hormone that you're taking, like a pill. Um, and what that does is that allows your body to trigger your period to come at a more regular pace. Um, so usually for people who have PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, or other irregular um, long cycles with... Uh, little to no period, that's who I'm telling to take uh, Vitex. During uh, or before your period, I recommend magnesium. It's not an herb, it's a supplement, but magnesium is magical for uh, menstrual cramps. It's also great for a lot of the other symptoms of uh, PMS because it's going to help decrease anxiety and improve sleep as well. Um, mm -mm -mm. Adaptogens are really nice herbs and the way that adaptogens, what adaptogens do is they improve your body's reaction to stress. So I say, you gotta stop stressing so that you'll have a regular period. Well, I can't stop working. I can't stop doing 24 hour overnight births um, and stressing my body out that way. But what I can do is give myself an herb that's gonna decrease the harmful effects of stress on my body. Um, there are a ton of different adaptogens. I can't list them all, but you can look them up. There are ones like ashwagandha and holy basil and reishi and shizandra and rhodiola and all of these different herbs have different specific times that they can be used but they are excellent for hormone balancing um, especially regarding menstrual cycles it is important to note with those that uh they are very gentle herbs and so it may take up to three months to see a difference but if you can if you can stick with it they are magical um also red raspberry leaf red raspberry leaf is one of my absolute favorite herbs it is 
for basically all things uterus. It has an alkaloid called fragorine, and what fragorine does is it actually strengthens and coordinates the muscle fibers in the uterus, which makes it so that uh, each contraction that the uterus does during the menstrual cycle, during your period, works better, is more effective. Um, and so what that does is it means that you're gonna be cramping less and for uh, less time. Um, each cramp is going to be more effective. Um, and also it's magical for pregnancy. I recommend it for everyone, definitely starting at least in 34, 36 weeks of pregnancy um, to drink an infusion of red raspberry leaf tea starting uh, at least three cups a day until they give birth. And what that is doing is the exact same thing. It's strengthening and coordinating the uterus so that each contraction is more effective. There's not a ton of research on it, but the research that exists shows us that people who have been drinking at least three cups of red raspberry leaf infusion um, starting at 36 weeks of pregnancy are more likely to, get a, to have vaginal births less likely to have interventions like forceps or vacuum and more likely to have a shorter second stage that's the pushing stage so it's a really fantastic herb i love it herbs are one of the things that i could talk about all day long i've studied herbalism for a few years now um i obviously am not a doctor chloe is um so make sure that you're taking what she says not with a grain of salt but what i say with a grain of salt check with your healthcare provider um, and while chloe is a doctor she's not your doctor so everyone keep your heads on about yourselves um i love particularly cramp bark um cramp bark is another really good herb that i mean it's called cramp bark it helps alleviate um the pains that come with period cramps and then also this is not necessarily for um periods i just love this mixture all together but lavender and chamomile you can make a really lovely tea of that um, or a tincture if you have the time to wait but lavender and chamomile not only does it taste really great but both of those are very calming herbs um, and so it does really really good things for your body but also your mindset lavender and chamomile are both herbs that um, that can help ease anxiety and other pms symptoms that that maybe creep into your head while you're on your period yeah, I actually use, I have a couple different teas um, that are for uh, heavy, crampy periods. One is my uh, flood tea, and that one is for way too much bleeding, um, and that has red raspberry. It has shepherd's purse, which is well known for slowing bleeding. It has yarrow, which is beautiful, such a lovely herb. Uh, for heavy bleeding and, and uh, decreasing inflammatory reactions. It has peony for uh, hormone balancing and nettle uh, for herbs, um, nettle for uh, for nutrients, for iron, um, since folks who are bleeding heavily are gonna have that. Um, you were talking about lavender. I have a 
a series of teas that I recommend, teas and tinctures for folks who are recovering from a miscarriage. Um, and I definitely include lavender in those. It's such a soothing, gentle herb. It's a really loving and tender herb, um, along with cramp bark and black haw. Black haw works essentially in tandem with cramp bark to be um, a muscle relaxant. It's an antispasmodic. It's going to just support the other herbs that you're taking, like the red raspberry leaf, to um, to coordinate and make those cramps that you're having. Because you do have to have some cramps. You do have to get that uterine lining out somehow, um, but they, they shouldn't have to hurt. Um, and it's supporting those cramps and being effective and efficient. Um, and chamomile is really, a, I mean, it's soothing and nice and delicious to drink, but it's one of the ones that has really uh, lasted in popular culture because it is so effective and it is great. There's new research coming out about how good it is for um, improving menstrual cramping. So it's a really nice thing to add. I love it. Ugh, herbs. I could just, again, talk about them all day long. So if people wanted to buy your teas, where where do they find those? Um, I have an Etsy shop. Uh, it's if you go into Etsy and you search the midwife is in, I think you should probably put it in all one word. Um, you'll find all of these different teas and tinctures and salves and vaginal suppositories, and they should all be um, available there. Amazing. And again, for our listeners, we will link all of the links in the show notes so that you guys can get access to Chloe's wonderful herbal things and you can take control of your period. Chloe, if people wanted to take a stand um, for like women's rights in the birth world, other than doing your due diligence, doing your research, make sure that you're advocating for yourself, um, knowing your rights, what can people do? What can your average person do to get involved with women's rights? Well, the only thing that I can think of right off the top of my head is um, that a really major part of supporting pregnant people is supporting abortion rights. And I don't know if that's something that you can put on the podcast, but. Yeah. Uh, but abortion is um, a safe and necessary healthcare procedure. And if we come back to the fact that all of midwifery care is about support in choice, then uh, we come back to recognizing that um, birth is a wild, intense, life-altering thing and we don't want everybody to to have to do that if they don't want to everyone has a right to deciding whether or not they're going to be pregnant and 
It's important to remember that carrying a pregnancy to term and placing a baby for adoption is not an alternative to parenting. Um, it's not an alternative to not wanting to be pregnant in the first place. Um, and that's where abortion comes in. Just remembering that whether you may or may not want it yourself, you're not in charge of making those decisions for someone else. Um, so I really put my effort into supporting local um, abortion clinics near me. Planned Parenthood is amazing. That's where I got my abortion, but they have tons of uh, funding. They can always use more. More important than that, I think, is if there is a um, a small local abortion clinic near you, get putting your money directly towards them, donating towards them, and making sure that they can continue to provide care for folks who may not be able to afford it. There are a lot of abortion funds as well. Those really, um, really need your help. Listeners, stay tuned for an entire episode surrounding abortion. I think that it's really important to remember exactly what Chloe said. You're not in charge of anybody else's body and you don't know how that person became pregnant. You don't know. It could have been a situation of rape and carrying that baby to term and then having to raise a child of someone's rapist could be way more damaging than having an abortion. Or there are cases where your pregnancy actually puts you, your life in danger. So carrying that baby to term might mean that you lose your life or worse, you and your baby lose your life. So there are lots of places where, again, just like epidurals and C-sections, um, abortions have a place in our birth world, in our medical world. So before you go throwing stones at your neighbor who made a decision that you might not have made for yourself, it's important to remember that they might have walked a path that you have never walked to get there. Chloe, this has been such a fun conversation. We touched on a lot of things that I think probably make your average person very uncomfortable, which just makes me smile. I'm sure all the listeners can hear it. I love to talk about these things that otherwise aren't getting the publicity that I think they deserve. If we are not talking about these things, then just like the abuse in gynecological care, it kind of goes pushed to the wayside or swept under the rug, or it just goes unnoticed. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Where can people connect with you other than your Etsy shop if they wanted to, um, to connect with you? So my, my home base, my blog is themidwifeisin.com. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook with the midwife is in, um, all one word, and you can email me at themidwifeisin at gmail.com if you have personal questions, if you just want to tell me how great you think I am, um, or if you want to connect with me for a project. One thing I wanted to say quickly that I realized I forgot earlier, I talked a lot about the coercion that happens on a regular basis for women searching out um, gynecological and obstetric care. But I also wanted to mention that 
it's not anything compared to the um, the harm that's done by the medical providers um, for folks who are lesbian, gay, transgender, bisexual, queer, anyone fitting into the LGBTQIA plus spectrum, um, they're experiencing coercion on a far higher scale. I know trans men who've come in to the healthcare provider's office because they had a cold and been told that they had to get a pelvic exam uh, in order to receive the antibiotics that they need for their cold. And that is just purely the provider wanting to see and indulging in their curiosity in a way that is completely unacceptable. Um, I know a lot of queer women who are trying to get pregnant and who are treated as if they're infertile and given all sorts of tests and medications and uh, blood draws and procedures that they don't need. They're not infertile, they just don't have sperm in their relationship. Um, and so they're just looking for a way to get that sperm where it needs to go. Um, that heterosexual couples would never have to undergo. Um, and so I just wanted to mention that, you know, we're talking about women, but it's so many different people. It's women and trans folks and gender non-binary, um, gender non-conforming people as well. The abuse is so real. Um, I think that Unfortunately, our birth world is something that has never been given too much thought and too much care. And now that it is starting to get this, these eyes on them and get this publicity, we are finding all of these really horrible, awful things that are happening and again, have been happening for years. They have been happening and they've been just swept under the rug and pushed to the wayside. So yeah. Oh, that's awful. That makes me have a really heavy heart. I feel sad about that, that we have care in America in a first world country that has so many resources and so much money and so much education and the most brilliant people in the world. And that is what some of our, our people have to endure when they go to the doctor because they got a cold in the winter. That is that's yeah. despicable. I'm sorry. I feel so sad for, for that person that that happened to. But I'm so happy that we have practitioners like you who are creating safe spaces for people who need compassionate caregivers who really understand their situation. Thank you. Chloe, do you have anything else to talk to our guest about before we wrap up? I'm so glad to be able to talk to you today. Thank you so much. It's such an honor. I love getting a chance to spout yeah, my opinions and, and get impassioned about birth work. I love this. I love this work. I love this field. And just so happy that there are other folks out there like you that I can talk to. Oh, thank you so much. I also love this field. It's really funny how I kind of came to be in this field, but it is by grand design and it was by no mistake that I found myself here and I found this 
burning passion that I truly think will never, ever, ever be put out in my soul. Listeners, from consent to abuse in the medical field, periods and herbal remedies, cervical exams, finding your rights, knowing your rights, taking control of your health care. This episode has been packed full with all sorts of great things for you. As always, there are links in the show notes for all the things that we talked about in today's episodes. Chloe's always happy to chat. You know where to find me. I'm always happy to chat. Happy, happy Tuesday, listeners. As always, villagers, Find your tribe and love them hard. Hello, villagers. I wanted to hop on here at the very end of the episode to remind you that enrollment is open for our Planning for Postpartum online workshop. This is all about the fourth trimester. We will teach you how to prepare to bring your baby home, what to expect from life with a newborn, and how to support your baby's sleep habits. And this includes getting sleep for you as new parents. We're diving into it all at our fourth trimester workshop. It is online. We're bringing it to your home. You join us with your computer from your couch in the comfort of your own home, two hours, November 29th. I will link the sign up in the show notes. Please check it out. We have limited the seats to only six families because we want this to be a very personalized workshop. We want to dive into exactly what is happening in your life. What are your concerns, your fears, your worries? Let's help expel those. I will see you guys at the workshop. Do not miss your chance to sign up. We will not be opening up more seats. This is it. Don't miss out, villagers. As always, find your tribe. Love them hard. Did you know that you can join our online tribes? Our private Facebook group can be found by searching the Tranquility Tribe podcast on Facebook. And our Instagram tribe is Tranquility by Hehe. If you have a story you want to share with us, please reach out to us at tranquillitybyhehe at gmail.com. Until next time, villagers.